Welcome to the Blockchain DNA Podcast. This show brings you the latest in blockchain technology and global developments in business and fintech. Presented by Metaverse DNA. My name is Alex Lightman, and this will be the very first Lightman Report. It's sponsored by DNA, thank you very much. And it will cover what I think are the biggest trends and ways that we need to look at the world. It will include cryptocurrency, it will include markets, financial markets, and politics, and let's get started. Now, future versions of the Lightman Report will have better production values. I have a, a studio set up, and I'll start using it for the future ones. I hope that you will uh, bear with me for this one. Um, and it won't be too distracting to see me here in my home by the, the curtains. So the title of this first talk is The Great Transition in Commerce. And we talk about this as a once-in-a-century pandemic. Uh, however, there's a whole book about the century of pandemics. There are actually quite a number of pandemics. Most of them have to do with disturbing nature in some way. So we are keep disturbing nature. We keep on exposing new reservoirs of viruses. So even without human intervention, we're going to be seeing other pandemics in the future. However, there's something that's even more than a once-in-a-century change. The great transition in commerce is something that I see as being a once-in-500-year level transition. So human beings, our, our Latin name is Homo sapiens sapiens, the sort of double wise hominid, uh, have been around for somewhere between 200,000 and 300,000 years. And for all but about the last 10,000 of those years, we were hunter-gatherers. About 10,000 years in the Middle East, North Africa, we started to settle next to rivers. We started to learn irrigation. We started to come together in our communities. I think the oldest city that's still around that you can walk is in Syria, and it's 9,000 years old. And we've had famous cities like Babylon, which had hanging gardens. So if we move ahead to the future, some of the biggest things that have happened have been discoveries in transportation, communication, and commerce. So I'm going to focus in this video on commerce. And what we've had is a big change around 500 years ago when the Turks conquered Constantinople and then they blocked all the access to the Silk Road. So the, the Europeans were trading with China and other nations or other tribes and other people across Asia, but the Turks said, no, you're not coming through here. And so the Europeans were initially flummoxed, what do we do? And they went, hey, starting with the Portuguese, the Spanish, and then later the Dutch and the English, they sailed and they started sailing around the, you know, South America, and they, what we now call South America, and they started sailing around uh, the Cape of Good Hope in Africa. And because they were able to make this shift in commerce, they were able to, between 1000 AD and 1500, they went from uh, basically being very marginal civilizations on the periphery who were joked about by Muslims who were in their golden age at the time, to conquering most of the world. And there's a whole book about this called The Measure of Reality, Quantification and Western Europe 1250 to 1600, which talks about this mania for measurement. So we have actually pretty decent financial records of what happened at the time. But with these, this shipping, 
going back and forth and replacing land-based uh, transportation and trade of goods with ship-based transportation and goods, we had an enormous impact on the world. We're in that level of transition right now. And we're going from what I call the stay-at-home economy to the shop-at-home economy. So we've had this transition underway for a while. If we look back about 100 years ago, we had this big explosion after the Crystal Palace had a great, in England, uh, had this great effusion and explosion of different kinds of products. That, so uh, you had replaceable parts, you had harvesters, you had mining equipments, you had engines. And uh, after this uh, exhibition in 1848, there was an explosion of new products, but there wasn't uh, very many uh, retail outlets to get these products. You had to sort of carry them to people. And then uh, Sears and Roebuck came up with their catalog. And so people would go to a little tiny storefront in their town, look through the Sears catalog that was there in the store. It's kind of like a, a store slash mini tiny library, like a Christian science reading room. And they would pick things out. And then the person who was the proprietor of the store would order them and they would come in once a week. They'd be coming in on the train or so. So that's we didn't have a lot of retail outlets. If you think about these old West ghost towns and stuff, they didn't have a lot of retail stores. They had a saloon. They had uh, perhaps a gunsmith, a blacksmith. They had a sheriff. They had, uh, you know, a hotel, very few kinds of retail. They didn't have all the specialty retail. But that one store for Sears made a big difference. Well, What's interesting now is we're going back to that, only instead of having this catalog sitting out there, of course, we have the internet. And so there are big implications of the age of COVID for m-commerce and e-commerce versus brick and mortar. And we are going from an evolution of gradually shifting more and more of our commerce, which recently the last I saw was something like 16% of all the retail sales were through e-commerce. And m-commerce, of course, is buying things with your mobile phone instead of going and doing it online. And there are different things that you buy if you're using a mobile phone than on, you know, online. But here's the basic thing. So, and these are my notes. I hope you won't mind my referring to them. But following the COVID-19 pandemic, there are industries that will be hit hard and there are those that are gonna surge. So during a crisis, people are changing their priorities. They're changing their perceptions. They're changing the way they behave. The momentum has given new momentum to the digital economy. And China is at the forefront of all of this. And offline retailers, brick and mortar retailers and travel and tourism, all these people are struggling to stay afloat. So e-commerce and m-commerce are surging with the exception of travel, tourism and, 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 and basically those kind of industries that don't work well when everybody's on a, a lockdown. We'll get, in, to get to the stats on that in a moment. Um, but ByteDance and Tencent are thriving from growing demand for games and online entertainment. So those are the big things. E-commerce is surging, m-commerce is surging, and entertainment, streaming entertainment are, are surging in a big way. So with social distancing and new shelter-in-place rules multiplying, Americans and others are turning ever more decisively to digital services, not only for remote work, but for entertainment. And there's all kinds of bingeable offerings from streaming services like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, and all these things that offer stuck-at-home viewers this massive explosion of new options. Uh, so cinemas in most of the world, uh, theaters uh, are, and concert halls are shut down. And Universal has announced that it would make its in-theater movies available online and just abandon the theatrical release window. There are articles speculating at the time that this uh, tape was made uh, uh, that on April 16th, uh, 2020, 
uh, that we would have almost no theatrical release possibly for the rest of the of the year in the United States. And that might be breaking Hollywood's last taboo. So parents are already struggling with trying to work from home and manage the kids. But the task is even harder with mobile without mobile devices because you can have parental settings. And so here are some interesting statistics. Uh, E-commerce was significant at the end of 2019. It's about 11% in the U.S. And it was growing fast in that fourth quarter. And what we saw is that mobile commerce grew from 50 0.92 billion, so about 51 billion in 2014 to 693 billion. So, so from about 51 billion to about 700 billion in 2019. That's quite a big thing. 67% of millennials and 56% of Gen Xers had preference for e-commerce shopping over in-store shopping, and 35% of online adults shopped online exclusively through their smartphones. 40% of consumers show, uh, chose to shop online to save themselves time. And the brick and mortar were forecasted to dominate retail. And in December, people were uh, saying and predicting that brick and mortar retail would dominate online sales for decades. The 2020s, the 2030s, the 2040s, maybe by 2050, we'd have e-commerce be more than that. But that forecast has just changed in just a few months. And so what we're seeing is a massive downward shift in brick and mortar retail because people are locked in, and a massive uptick of online uh, retail. And part of the reason is because we have the global lock-ins and lockdown for billions of people. So basically, it's um, the size of the corona lockdowns. India, uh, 1.3 billion. China at the height was 760 billion, uh, million, sorry, 1.3 billion in India, 760 million at the height in China. China is now going through another wave, so it's starting lockdowns again. Uh, America, United States, 172 million. France, 67 million. England, the UK, 66 million. Italy, 60 million. South Africa, uh, 57 million, and so on. So all this adds up to billions of people. And coronavirus is driving U.S. consumers online. Online retailers based in the U.S. saw a 52% increase in online spending, 52% increase between the fifth and the eighth weeks of 2020 compared to the fifth and the eight weeks in 2019. So we're 50% up, 52% up in this period compared to last year. And we also see an even bigger rise in China and, um, and uh, Italy. So basically, here's a forecast. Uh, the, for the, the Lightman Report forecast for the rest of 2020. Uh, Coronavirus-inspired uh, shopping habits are likely here for the long term. It's going to uh, uh, COVID-19 will change the way consumers shop and what they shop for. E-commerce sales will be up. Brick-and-mortar traffic will be down. Household staples and health-related goods, toilet paper, bottled water, hand sanitizer, face masks, bleach are in very high demand. Luxury goods are not in high demand though there is an anomaly that, a, that an Hermes store opened. They had millions of dollars in one day. So that's the one counter to all this. But we're living in a different world. And the question is, how different and how long is this going to last? So here are three takeaways. One, coronavirus precautions have led to a decrease in in-store visits and an increase in e-commerce spending. Two, consumers are buying groceries and health-related products that they haven't historically bought online in large numbers. It used to be that very few people bought apparel online uh, because it was hard to get the fit. But now that we've got the fits pretty well down, 
uh, apparel has zoomed in the last year or two years to being the number one category of purchases online. And so it might be that we see similarly that things that uh, that were languishing, that people just don't buy online for whatever reason, suddenly something things are happening and they're propelled forward in a big way. So it's not just that e-commerce is shifting from 11% of all the purchases to, or 16% in some places to bigger numbers, but certain categories are increasing by hundreds of percent. And here's an interesting quote. When a lot of people are self-quarantined or staying in their homes and being a lot less in public places, we're going to see a shift in behavior. That something that's happened in the first quarter of 2020 is going to change behavior in the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter. And so you have these products that are, are basically, you know, that, that we just discussed about the hand sanitizer and stuff that are big ones. Um, they increase another point. Not only are consumers doing more of their shopping online, but they're buying things that they hadn't bought online before. And after going online for those purchases, it's likely consumers will embrace this kind of shopping experience. A lot of people are just were afraid for no reason. Older people are, are afraid for no reason, but once they get into it, then it becomes so much easier than having to gas up the car or walk and take, a, take something. And once they start to buy online and pick it up at the grocery store and they start doing home delivery, that behavior is going to change going forward. So um, a, a quote is, they're going to say, wow, that was pretty easy to get online groceries delivered to my front door. Why my front door? Why am I not doing this all the time? So here are some numbers that are the growth um, in in Alibaba platforms, and this is the the growth in times. So at one is a hundred percent, you know, twice is a hundred percent increase. So meat uh, purchased online is four times. Uh, seafood three times. Remember, these are on Alibaba platform. Dumplings twice as much. Hot pot ingredients twice as much. Cooked rice dishes twice as much. Workout equipment, dance mats, eight times, eight hundred percent increase in dance mat sales. That's incredible. So, get your dance mat thing. Apparently, everybody's doing it. Uh, pull rope or pull machines uh, like uh, rowers uh, are up seven times. Yoga mats up six times. Elliptical trainers four times, and so these numbers are, are pretty amazing. Um, uh, William Chung, a Asia equity portfolio manager at Access, said the last two months of quarantine has reshaped consumer purchases and transaction behavior to shift more towards online. We've seen in Italy and Spain, both of which are hard hit by coronavirus, that first time installs of Netflix app were up 57 percent for Italy and 34 percent from uh, in Spain. And we see live streaming across YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, more, up more than 66% in Italy. But the brands looking to capitalize on the stuck-at-home audiences are finding that their messages don't always resonate or produce actions. That's because brands are looking to increase sales for products and services, and consumers don't want to go. So if you're going to advertise, it should be something that someone needs in the home and they want to have right away. So the best combination is a company that actively facilitates both consuming content at home and shopping content at home trends. Um, so I hope that this has been useful and enjoyable. I'm Alex Lightman, CEO of Kimoji, and I thank DNA for sponsoring the, the first edition of the Lightman Report. See you next week. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now, back to the show. Welcome to this first YouTube 
ever on the Lightman Reports. Um, let me introduce first to you Alex Lightman, author, futurist, fintech expert, global analyst, I would say. On the other hand, we have Eric Q, who's the CEO and of Metaverse DNA and is joining us to talk about his perspective on e-commerce and m-commerce. Alex, to just drop right the ball in the court, um, we heard your Lightman report of last week about actually um, the transition into e-commerce and m-commerce that's taking way faster a route than we ever perceived like three months ago even. So how do you see the roles of decentralized public blockchains in this whole development that you discussed last week? Well, we've had during this, uh, just to summarize and recap what that Lightman report was, uh, it was the first one and it's enabled by uh, Metaverse DNA, which I very much appreciate. So the, the, in, the, in a summary, uh, COVID-19 has caused a supply shock. All of a sudden, you can't get all the things you want. Still, after almost two months, you cannot get toilet paper in LA unless you have inside information about where it's going to be available. You still can't get gloves, masks, hand sanitizer. And so you, uh, you basically have uh, uh, also a uh, demand shock. Demand for, let's say, commercial food supplies from restaurants is down uh, 100% in some places. You have about 50 to 80% of industries where demand has dropped 50 to 80%. And then you have market shock. So the stock market had its worst day of this millennium uh, in March when basically flights within Europe were, were canceled in a big day. It was 9.99% uh, down in one day. And so two of the, uh, the worst days of this millennium, of the last 20 years, both happened within the last uh, five weeks or so. And now in the last two weeks, we've had the best two-week performance of the Dow Jones since the 1930s. Yes. <laughs> and so these are historic times. These are times that people will look back on 100 years and even 1,000 years from now and, and wonder what was happening with us. And so what I'm hoping that the Lightman Report will do is talk about what are the really big trends so we can get a perspective on how history will look at us comparing us to the last thousand years and the next thousand years. Like, so what's the big thing? So the biggest trend of all for me is this once in 500 year shift in what people are buying in a major way. And the, the summary is that we had only 11% of all of our goods were being sold through e-commerce and m-commerce last year. That's not really very much. And so people were looking and extrapolating, okay, so how long will it take for us to have the majority of our goods sold online? And people were saying it would take as long as to 2040, 2050 or so. It actually is going to happen this year. And it's very rare that people can have mathematical precision all these models looking at all these big companies <laughs> that don't have an ax to grind and suddenly can be there. And it's almost as if the people who invest in Amazon and Netflix, um, you know, Netflix was the best performing stock of the last decade. And it's almost as if they're psychic and they realize that people are gonna be buying things from, uh, you know, from Amazon and at home streaming and binging on Netflix. And so to answer your question, which is a great question, Anamika, uh, basically public blockchains can play a, a big role in authentication of goods. You want to be able to know who the buyer is. You want to be able to know who the seller is. And this is a catastrophe 
in a big sense for buying masks and buying gloves and buying these things in global yeah. supply chains. Because as we've seen played out in the drama of the Donald Trump press conferences, the federal government is going in and not only outbidding states and companies and smaller countries, but it's even seizing goods along the way. So there's a big article in the New England Journal of Medicine about a Boston hospital and where the head of the hospital had to fly down and they put the medical supplies in food trucks because they didn't want to be stopped by federal agents <laughs> who would who would get them. And it's almost like you're in a it's we've become a third world country over medical supplies because you can't you do not have trusted sellers and you do not have trusted buyers. You have to still in this age when we have all this disease, we still do, uh, need that face-to-face, -face. like that a, a hospital director, instead of saving lives, has to fly from Massachusetts to Georgia to go and sneak medical supplies, and they're stopped by federal agents who are talking about selling, the, uh, basically stealing them, um, get grabbing them with no compensation and taking them somewhere we don't know. We need blockchains. We need to have trusted buyers, trusted sellers, and uh, we basically want to speed up the transactions and we want to have a, an increased transaction speed for e-commerce and m-commerce because right now we have 8 billion people who want to buy, sell, borrow, loan, and swap with each other without meeting each other face-to-face. -face. So you're not going to get this, uh, this Lightman Report great transition of uh, basically taking the time that would have taken to 2040 or 2050 in one year without blockchains because you want to have the trust machine going. Yes, exactly. Now, Eric, you're on the verge of launching a complete major new development with Metaverse uh, dual network architecture. Now, if you just heard, you know, Alex's explanation on how this tremendous, I would say, it's not even an increase in speed, is a paradigm. I mean, we are witnessing something in history I've never seen in my lifetime. It's it's. On one hand, scary, uh, it's worrying, but on the other hand, it's sort of an extreme experience in many ways. Now, you're on the verge of actually launching something that enables this trustless way of doing things. So could you explain us a little bit more where you see this project develop in the area that Alex has just discussed, the e-commerce side of things? I don't hear you. You got your mic on. You're muted. <laughs> you have to unmute. Oh, yes. yes. I just love this is being live. Yep. If ever I have proof, this is not pre-recorded or this is not edited. <laughs> because Eric forgot to unmute his phone. <laughs> oh, that's my habit. Usually I join a, a video conference just to mute myself. Just the background noise don't get into the, co I know. the conference. And like well, anyway. all of us, Eric's doing home office, Alex doing home office. So is, you know, everybody's doing home office. If you're decentralized, digitalized, like we are already, I mean, Let's say it's that, privileged in that respect. So, Eric, I, well, yeah, I what have are you? the best of both worlds because I live on the fourth floor of a building and my office is on the 16th floor. I so know. I have and my office, <laughs> and I can go between them while still staying in quarantine. Well, you know, we're a little bit more home based. And I must say, I know that Eric decentralized and sent all his people home to give them safe um, safeguard over this very difficult period. We are blessed to be in an industry, basically, that enables us to do that. Many people are obliged to live hand to mouth. 
need to go out to work to even eat at the end of the day. And that's a devastating aspect that we're just facing worldwide. Eric, now you're on the brink of launching this major new development. How do you see this whole development of this fast transition and, you know, in, in comparison to your project? Yeah, well, I think you're right that we're blessing that we're, it's, it's, we're, we're in a great industry right now. I mean, uh, everything is online, everything is uh, decentralized. So our team is very diverse. We have different offices around the globe. We have Shanghai office, which is in China. We have a Toronto office. We have a Euro European partners as well. So uh, for this uh, pandemic, interestingly, uh, um, February, we have to order the Shanghai office to go home, right? Uh, get quarantined and work from home. Uh, yeah, work from home. Then in the uh, late March, we are ordering the, the Toronto office, the Canadian office, you know, go home and work from home. So, but it, it doesn't impact us much because we are already used to the decentralized working environment, which is very good. So it actually, we're actually ahead of everybody, everybody else. And uh, yeah. <laughs> So if you look through the e-commerce situation with the new Metaverse DNA technology, how do you see e-commerce? And I don't like to call it e-commerce or m-commerce. I just yesterday thought of a new term, which is called d-commerce. It's everything digital that got to do with commerce. Maybe I just invented it. Maybe somebody else already did. I just promote it to be d-commerce because it explains that this everything that goes on digitally, whether it's on your phone, on the internet, your computer, Whatever device comes next, it's digital. So I prefer digital commerce. Um, so I think one of the things that I would like to talk about is how do you see this e-commerce transition, um, you know, as an opportunity within the DNA uh, development that you're just, you know, ready to launch actually? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, I think it's a great opportunity. Uh, before I thought this coming maybe in 10, 20 years, but you know, I think uh, these, this, this uh, COVID-19 situation just push everything forward much quicker. It, it will happen uh, much quicker. So the DNA situation, I think Alex said is really good. A lot of people say blockchain. Blockchain is like trace where these goods come from, right? So we're sure, we're 100% confident in this, the origin of the, 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 the producer, where it come from, what, what kind of material, raw material you're using. But for using DNA, we have a little bit more than this because what's important for DNA is digital identity. We have digital identity for everybody, buyers and sellers. So not only goods. So goods, well, other blockchains can take care of that too. But for the touch of DNA, we have, when we have digital identity, all the sellers are verified. And also the buyers, well, now you don't have a situation that some hospital <laughs> people <laughs> have to steal goods from somewhere else, right? So this is, this is yeah. I, I just heard war, war stories where complete planes were hijacked in Shanghai by governments. <laughs> one way. No, it's a true story. It was in the papers and actually in China as well. Yeah. yeah right. And also add on to your uh, digital commerce idea. I think it's... Yes, yeah, I think you got it right. Uh, give a little bit story about my mom. My mom in in her seventies, right? So in a million years, I never dreamed that uh, she could, you know, use 
digital commerce. But early this year, she started using uh, what, what do you call this uh, e-commerce? Well, shopping online, right? Now, now, now she's at home. Now she started using her iPad and shop. You know, this is like everything happens like so quickly. Like it, it caught me off guard, right? It's but it's it's an interesting story. Yeah, I think if you you know listen to this whole idea, um, Alex, you know. Where do you think the advantages for something like people are in a platform like DNA? What, what does it have to offer more than what we already know? We talked a little bit about the, you know, the digital identity part, like seller, buyer, trustless society. What more as an advantage do you see grow for a platform like Metaverse DNA is now developing? Sure. Well, I think that your point about digital commerce is, is important. I've heard that the big tech companies like Google and, and Facebook are called big digital. So e-commerce and it goes well with that big digital theme. That's how I refer Market, to it. That we invented it here today. Okay. <laughs> well, it's very generous of you to say we, so sure. Uh, well, so what are, as far as, uh, as, as I understand it, uh, Metaverse's uh, dual network architecture clears an important dilemma. It, it solves a dilemma between on the one side security and on the other side speed. We need both of them. And I, one of the big things that I have always liked, uh, I've done uh, travel and speaking with uh, the CTO of Metaverse DNA, Ken Wong. Ken Wong worked in charge of blockchain at Huawei for two years. And uh, though I didn't understand every word he said because the talks were in Chinese, he had the slides <laughs> enough in English uh, and I could read them. And he eats, sleeps, breathes digital identity. And ultimately that's one of the, the big drawbacks from, uh, from the first 10 years of the commercial use of the, the end user use of blockchains is because it's, it's basically like Swiss bank accounts. Everybody is anonymous. And so the idea of getting digital ID right so that the people you want to know who you are know, but the people who don't, you don't want to know, don't know, is very important. And doing that fast and doing that securely, that makes a big difference. And so basically in a, in a key place is COVID-19. We now have in the world, we have, um, or, well, I can't speak for the whole world, but I can speak for the United States. We have about 4 million people now tested and we have about 350 million people in the country right now. And so just over 1% of people have been tested and many people don't really want their testing status to be known. And we're, you know, people are yeah. doing all these kind of tests so we want, and we have HIPAA requirements. You can be fined $2,500 per security breach of a medical record per day. So if you're a hospital and you're having to tell the CDC, so the way that it works in the US, again, I don't know the whole world, but there are 36 databases with your medical records and half of them have your name and address and half of them just are supposed to anonymize it. They just have your medical data. So you're not supposed to be able to click and say, oh, there's this many people who are infected. And in the United States, it's over 750,000 people right now. And we have now passed 42,000 people who are dead from this. Uh, unfortunately, I'm very sad about that. Uh, and we, you know, you want to, you don't want people to just be able to keep clicking on these numbers and then find out who lives and who has it because you're going to have neighborhoods that if they think somebody's infected, they will hound them out. We had the stories from the very first month of January of small 
villages in China blocking off their roads with cinder blocks and mortar to keep people from coming into their village. And, you know, that, that protects them. But basically, we have to keep, we have to get digital identity right because we're going to do so much online. And so, you know, the metaverse uh, dual, dual network architecture, I think, could be a very uh, important aspect of that. I would say that, you know, with all the hacks that we've seen over the past period, and, you know, if we can speak for Europe, the apps as sort of a copycat of what's going on in Southeast Asia, like Korea and Japan with, you know, registration, we have a different culture setting. So we are less prone to accept from a government that it takes all our information. You know, it's GDPR law, that's EU. So there's a lot to do about exactly that aspect. Do I need to be personally as a real world identity to be identified or is it enough that somewhere I've proven to be a real person and then I've a digital avatar or whatever you wanna call it, a digital identity, and that way at least my privacy is protected. So it's a huge discussion in Europe actually this week, even in my own country where nine apps have been developed and all flunked over the weekend. Uh, it was to be expected. What, what do you mean? What what kind of apps? Apps that would register who has coronavirus and who has not. Got it. Tracing. An app that you can do tracking and tracing. It's not in our culture in Europe. So, you know, we're less prone to take on board the same, uh, how do you say, I wouldn't say control, but the, the basics of fighting this virus. So if digital identity was already here, and I actually had that discussion today, if sovereign identity in some way had created a digital avatar of which we had a big summit even in The Hague in February, we would have been out of the woodworks already, you know? I even had a discussion this afternoon about exactly the same subject. And because we haven't got that on the blockchain, we're stuck in the old economy way of, you know, pinpointing the personal identity like a passport copy and saying, she and him and everybody else has got corona and that way creates social, I would say almost discrimination because that's the way it's heading. You know, um, instead of creating immunity groups which are anonymous, which would be great if we knew that we were safe in an environment where everybody was tested or everybody was immune, uh, we are still stuck in the discussion of the old database structures where we don't have blockchain. So Eric, if we, look at you know the 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 seriousness and you hear all this idea um how do you see this development going in the next few months because we saw a tremendous speed in the transition to digital commerce do you think that this same speed will apply as to finally adopting all these new technologies that you know both all of us have been involved for the last four or five or longer years in in this new blockchain era all these new developments do you think the same transition will go that direction or will we still be fighting you know the old castles of sticking to what we call you know the old ways which obviously has proven us wrong over the over the last couple of weeks it doesn't work that's as clear as hell we're being pushed out right we're being pushed out of our old way there's no way we can do old way anymore I think so too. Yeah, the other day I went to this uh, supermarket. It was like a long lineup. They reduced the, 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 the flow of the, the crowd, right? See, so there are only 50 people can get into Walmart at a certain time. So there's, there will be a long lineup. I, 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 I was there for, for, for one hour. It just doesn't work for me. 
So I decide not to do that anymore. So I have to go go back, come back, and I do it online, right? And shop online. Uh, so we're we're being pushed into that uh, that uh, fast growing. Um, interestingly, um, I think what you said called solvent identity is very very important because when we use technology, we need to really think about what's the right way of using the technology. So if you if we have an identity that say, oh, I had. COVID-19 before, but I recovered. I'll say I, I'm like actively carrying the virus. Is, isn't that open for abuse or say discrimination, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a huge subject. So something needs to be done, but it's not, in, not non-invasive. So w- if you trust uh, our identity to a centralized organization, like maybe you trust to Netflix, which is the fast growing stock price for the decade, right? And I noticed Amazon just created a 52-week high today, right? Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of our, digital, I mean, information. How? Yeah, that's because of the Lightman report saying how valuable. It is. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But how they make money, right? So whenever you log on to, let's say, um, uh, Amazon, you you bought something. That all of a sudden, your Google just promoting similar item to you. They're yeah. actually making money of the data you provide to them. So it is my data, right? I, I, I search for something. Let's say I want to buy that. I want to purchase a phone. I'll say I want to buy something else. I want to buy a hard drive, right? Something like that. Then on the next day, they use the, the information you feed to the internet and sell something to back to you. And they got money from the, uh, the, the, uh, the company that set, uh, bought, bought their commercial, right? But what I'm trying to say is we need to have the sovereign identity, which is the, this identity actually owned by you. And this identity will own the, the, all the data that you provide to the system. Right? say so all the data that owned by you, including the medical records. Now, the next topic is, not next topic is, if anyone wants to make money off the data, by owning the data under your digital identity, you can make sure that you get paid for use of your own data. Of course, under your permission, right? So th- this this is what I see. We're going the direction we're going, and yeah, metaverse DNA is actually designed to go that way. Yes, do you agree with that direction, Alex? That that should yeah. be taken. That anything you do belongs to you, and that you know you should be able to instead of big companies at least get a part of the pie. Sure, uh, I've been. I had worked in the early days with Data, uh, Digital Asset Trade Association, and one of the co-founders of Data is Brittany Kaiser, who wrote the book Targeted and worked at Cambridge Analytica. And she has the Own Your Data Foundation now. And, you know, one of the people working on that. Uh, so, yes, I've been, I've been uh, exposed to those arguments uh, for almost as long as I've been in blockchain. And the numbers are pretty amazing. I mean, when you consider that uh, Google makes 120 billion taking people's data. Like as we're going through, you know how if you have certain kinds of glasses on night vision, you can see into different spectra. So you can see it, for instance, into the infrared. If somebody's uh, in a room, you can see them through the wall because they're emitting infrared, you can uh, go and see. And if you had glasses on that looked at your data, you leave kind of a smog around you. You have medical data, you have purchasing data, you have movement data, 
and people are being tracked and Facebook is tracking people even off the app and making, uh, they're, they're making companies worth a trillion dollars. This is, so uh, I've given talks before and I can do a, a Lightman report on this about how data is the new oil. And that's not even a metaphor anymore. If you look at the revenue from data now in the United States, it's more than the revenue for oil. And as we're having this today, we've had a historic low. So in the United States, uh, oil has dropped to $11 a barrel. There's nobody who was predicting that. Remember a few years ago, Goldman Sachs was predicting $300 a barrel. And you have Canadian... Yeah, it was responsible for actually these shallow oil uh, projects in the United States to become more dependent on their own oil, you know, and these projects are all going to go belly up because the prices are ridiculously low at the moment. Well, the, the most interesting price uh, uh, in Eric's country of Canada, uh, Western <laughs> Canadian crude today fell to a negative price. In other words, they have so much of it, they pay you to take it away. <laughs> you know... Just walking this walking into this conversation, uh, so five minutes ago, I looked. The price was four dollars and ninety cents. Uh, who who could imagine this? <laughs> Not yet. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody, nobody could imagine this January first, and that's actually. I want to get back to the theme of your library report. That incredible transition that we're going through to digital commerce or e-commerce. I like the word e-commerce. It's simple. Everything goes under there. E-commerce. Uh, okay. That speedy transition. I think if we summarize it's what we D, D for Dirk's commerce. <laughs> I'm not that presumptuous. I'm not doing that, Alex. I think it's really nice. I haven't thought about that. I just thought, you know, it's all digital. So we're going to have new devices. We're going to have, you know, virtual machines. We're going to have all sorts of stuff that will enable us to step in a shopping mall with furniture in it and discuss what we want to buy without even going there anymore. That's all digital commerce. It's way, way ahead of what we now know as just web shops and you know, doing something on a mobile phone. I think the future development will still enable us to do much, much more in digital commerce than we ever thought. It will enable us to go in a plant in, in China or the Philippines or the United States, walk around the production process, you know, pick the colors, do the design. That world is still you know, in its baby shoes in my view. So I think e-commerce is, is sort of a better phrase because it lifts us out of, you know, what we have known so far. And it's so incredibly fast. If Corona stays with us and other COVID-19, COVID-2, COVID-4 will influence our world, we might have to face up to the fact that it's not going anywhere. One of the, uh, I think out of this transition that I want to take away from this interview is that when I hear you both, blockchain is going to be exceptionally influential in this whole development because it's the only way that we can provide ourselves with digital identity, with speed and security in a trustless society between buyers and sellers. And, and uh, I would say the, the providence, the honesty, the genuinity of products in a general, I would think that we can all agree that that's sort of what we take away from this discussion. We are going to do much more of these shows as we're going to digitalize actually the Lightmare reports for the rest of the year. So for everybody who's been viewing, I, I, I taped the I taped the next three episodes yesterday. <laughs> That's going to be wonderful. But you so, told me ten to fifteen minutes, and they're about twenty minutes. So maybe we have to chop them up. Both great talkers. For the future, we will try always to stay on the subject of the Lightmare report because the three of us can talk 
hours and hours about blockchain development, the world economy, and all the developments. We're all on top of it. I want to thank you both so much, Alex, for your general analysis, your global view, and your fintech expertise. Eric, so much for your, you know, your explanation about the future of an actual product, an actual project that's going to be available. I think with the both of you on the balance, Alex, from, I would say, an objective perspective from a world vision, who's not doing anything, you know, in presenting a platform, and Eric, you from the practical reality of the world of really making product available to the world. So I want to thank you both. Um, thank you, Anamika. Thanks for joining us this week on the Blockchain DNA podcast. Make sure to visit our website and follow us on social media at DNA by Metaverse or at MVS DNA. Till next time. Till next time. Till next time.